Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Pushing Boundaries, China's Aggressive New Tactics in South Asia. Please welcome our host, Jeff Smith, Research Fellow on South Asia at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, hello, and thanks to everyone uh, joining us from home. It's great to be back in the office, uh, back in person, especially with such a distinguished panel of experts to talk about an issue that uh, I think deserves more attention. Um, these days, it seems that China is in the headlines daily, getting a lot of attention, but a disproportionate amount of that attention, I would argue, uh, has been going to its activities in the East and South China Seas, uh, activity toward Taiwan, what it's doing in Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and Tibet, and rightly so, uh, deserves attention. But as a result, I think we've somewhat neglected some of the activities and the boundary pushing that China has been doing in South Asia, uh, including toward India and Bhutan uh, along these territorial fault lines. I'm going to take five minutes here to do a brief introduction of the speakers uh, to frame the discussion we're going to have today. And then I'm going to turn the floor over to them and ask them to offer 10 minutes of remarks on the subject at hand. And hopefully, we'll have enough time left over for uh, Q&A and a back and forth interaction. Uh, speaking first, and to my immediate left, uh, Dr. Dan Marquis is a senior research professor in international relations at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He's also the academic director of the school's Master of Arts in Global Policy. He is also author of a very timely book released last year named China's Western Horizon, Beijing and the New Geopolitics of Eurasia. I would encourage those of you interested to grab a copy. Uh, Dhruva, to his left, uh, Dhruva Jaishankar is the executive director at the Observer Research Foundation America. Congratulations, Dhruva, on opening a US branch of ORF, um, very prominent think tank in India that we work with uh, quite often. Dhruva is also a non-resident fellow with the Lowy Institute and previously held positions at Brookings and at the German Marshall Fund. Darshana Barua is an associate fellow with the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where she leads the Indian Ocean Initiative. Her primary research focuses on maritime security in Asia and the role of the Indian Navy in the new security architecture in the region. I've known Darshana for many years, followed her work, and as a new transplant to DC, we welcome you uh, to Washington, Darshana. Uh, to frame the discussion today, I would assume uh, most viewers tuning in uh, are aware that China and India have a long-standing border dispute. Since we don't have seven hours, I'm not going to go into the background and the history and the details of that border dispute. Just suffice to say that in recent years, the issue has been heating up. After 
roughly 20 years of uh, roughly sort of well managing the border dispute peacefully. Uh, in recent years, the consensus has largely broken down, and we've seen a series of escalating crises at the border, beginning in 2013 and 2014 with prolonged Chinese incursions across the line of actual control, leading up to a somewhat unprecedented crisis on the Doklam Plateau in 2017 near the China-India-Bhutan border. And then beginning last year, um, an even graver crisis erupted at the LAC in Ladakh, which resulted in the first casualties from hostilities in over 40 years. Clearly, something appears to be shifting in China's approach to the territorial dispute with India. And I'm very much interested to hear from our panelists on what they believe is animating this strategy and China's growing appetite for risk. I'm also eager to bring Bhutan into the discussion. It gets far less attention than India, um, but China's actions toward Bhutan have arguably been no less provocative in recent years. Those two countries also have a land border dispute, and between 1984 and 2016, they held 24 rounds of negotiations on that border dispute. Those talks centered on two Chinese claims in, in Bhutan's territory, one in the north and one in the west. The belief was that China may be willing to drop its claim to territory in Bhutan's north if Bhutan was willing to cede to China territory in the west, which happens to be located near a strategically important strip of Indian territory named the Chicken's Neck. So it was surprising last year when China seemed to fabricate an entirely new claim to territory in Bhutan's east, and even more surprising when reports revealed that China had begun building villages inside Bhutan's territory, with reportedly with plans to build even more. And so um, this is, frankly, in addition to other activities China has been doing in South Asia, um, activities in Sri Lanka, in the Maldives, its growing footprint in the Indian Ocean has been concerning uh, for some time now. But with India and Bhutan, we not only have uh, Chinese activities, economic and military activities, but uh, border disputes that are seemingly intractable and, and growing more volatile by the day. So with that uh, discussion framed, I want to uh, first turn the floor over to Dr. Marquis. Uh, Dan, you've just written a book on China looking west. Uh, I would love to hear from you um, on what you think is animating uh, China's new strategy in South Asia and its growing appetite for risk. Well, thanks. Thanks, Jeff, um, for the great introduction. Uh, thanks for including me on the panel. It's exciting to see you, at least in person, if not our, our audience. It's great to, to be able to, I'm looking forward to hearing from Dhruva and Darshana uh, and getting their perspectives. Uh, so it's nice to be back, and I'm looking forward to a time when this room will also be filled uh, with real, real live human beings. But um, for now, uh, let me uh, sort of advance three sets of related observations having to do with the developments that you've just uh, so effectively described. Um, the first of these, 
and I'll, and I'll be sort of blunt right from the outset. Uh, China's regional security and geopolitical aims are likely to eclipse its economic agenda in South Asia. Now, I say this uh, with some context. Uh, you know, Jeff mentioned this book that I had come out last year on China's Western Horizon. As I was working on that, and of course that took years to do, um, I often found that in discussions of, of Chinese activities, uh, not just in South Asia, but more broadly in Central Asia and into the Middle East, the issue of the Belt and Road Initiative uh, tended to dominate thinking about China's activities. And with respect to the, to the Belt and Road, or the BRI now, uh, in, uh, in shorthand terms, um, the focus tended to really fix on infrastructure development and economics. Uh, trade, loans, um, development, economic development, um, and regional economic integration. That tended to dominate uh, conversations about China's activities in the region. And it is true, as I point out in the book, uh, that China has led, typically, in all of these areas, including in South Asia, with an economic agenda, uh, what some have started more frequently to describe as economic statecraft. But this economic statecraft very quickly, and I think quite importantly, uh, comes with political and security implications. And this is a pattern, again, that we've seen. I look at it in Central Asia, in countries like Kazakhstan or Tajikistan, um, in countries in the Middle East, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and so on. Um, but it's also, it's most advanced, I think, in South Asia, close to China, uh, with longstanding ties to China, a deep and long, exceptionally uh, strong history of security ties between China and Pakistan, um, which has, if anything, gotten tighter over recent years, uh, in part as the United States' relationship with Pakistan has deteriorated. Uh, China is increasingly active in Central Asia in security terms, not just economic terms, but in security terms uh, with countries like Tajikistan, uh, and even with Kazakhstan, for instance, by selling drones or uh, having active uh, security liaison relationships. Uh, and it seems China is increasingly involved in directly in Afghanistan, um, not least by having uh, direct talks with the Taliban, uh, their representatives, uh, and with other parts of Afghan society. And I think we're likely to see this uh, continue and grow. And even with respect to China's relationship with India, obviously fraught, uh, economic and trade ties used to be the centerpiece of this relationship and the thing uh, that many, if not most people, paid most attention to. But these obviously have been jeopardized in important ways by security conflict along their, uh, their border. And uh, also, I think, uh, by uh, the context of a broader geopolitical competition, uh, which of course, uh, at, its, at its highest levels, uh, pits the United States uh, against China. Now, if we look back over the past few years, as I say, and we think about some of these conversations we've been having about Chinese initiatives in the region, which really focus on BRI uh, and debt traps uh, and, and all of this infrastructure, billions in infrastructure spending, um, I have some concerns that, uh, in retrospect, some of these uh, will seem like red herrings, that is, distractions um, from other aspects of what China has been up to. Uh, building up its capacity for political influence in the region. Again, broadly speaking, uh, in terms of its investments in new media, 
uh, media platforms, digital infrastructure, education outreach, uh, training programs, and so on, uh, major uh, sort of people-to-people -people, uh, uh, outreach. And it's also built up its capacity for military power projection throughout this region and continues to do so, uh, and for uh, security and um, intelligence uh, connections, ties with regional partners like Pakistan, defense sales, a growing defense sales on uh, in areas like drones um, and other broader security technology cooperation, as well as training and exercises. So China is doing more in these other areas as well. Last point on this, this opening observation is that whatever China's grand plans for the region may be, and we can talk more about what they might be, they will never unfold in a vacuum. And if I had to identify the core analytical observation from, from my book, it would be that regional players uh, matter. Uh, the, uh, China does not act upon them. Uh, this is not an empty playing field. Uh, this is an area in which uh, countries, even small countries like Bhutan, um, have something to say about what happens in their relations with China. Uh, and I explore that both at the domestic level in terms of domestic political economy uh, and how that can affect China's relations with various countries, and at the sub-regional level, that is, existing uh, political and military competitions throughout the region will be affected by and in turn will affect uh, China's ability to influence what is going on. So that's my first uh, opening observation. Second, more briefly, and I think Dhruva is going to talk a bit more about this, the India-China relationship is clearly worse than almost ever. And as a consequence of uh, the developments that Jeff pointed out in 2020, um, there's a new normal, not just in India-China ties, which is true, but also in, I would say, US-India ties. Now, looking back again, in, in 2015, I did a short report for the Council on Foreign Relations on China-India uh, military contingencies, uh, including along their shared border. And at that time, I was really struck by how hard it was to get anybody serious, including in New Delhi, where I went for, for a research trip, um, to talk to me about the serious potential of a militarized uh, conflict along their border. Uh, most people that I spoke with were pretty sanguine about the relationship for the reasons that Jeff pointed out. Uh, they anticipated that this border could be managed without military violence, without the kinds of casualties that we saw in 2020, that the two sides were practiced at it and they would continue with these practices, and that probably the only way you could really get the two to, to go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, as we've seen, is if we saw multiple overlapping crises buffet their relationship, which would strain the bandwidth of either side uh, to manage those um, crises effectively. And times, obviously, since then have really changed. Um, we have a new ceiling in the, in the India-China relationship, as I say. Uh, I think the Indian side uh, has lost whatever um, hope or um, confidence it had uh, in being able to manage its relationship with China effectively uh, and without militarized, uh, at least, competition going forward. And there's a new floor in the U.S.-India relationship, and this is because the land uh, border will continue to remain a zone of serious concern. India, I believe, has come off relatively worse from this latest round of conflict than China has, in part because the crisis overlapped uh, with its uh, COVID economic and uh, health crisis. 
And this has demonstrated all along the limits of India's military or conventional military capacity to deal with what has been described as Chinese uh, territorial nibbling uh, or pushing the envelope. Uh, this is a very difficult uh, military challenge to meet. It has uh, also shown that it is difficult for India to beat China at its game of economic statecraft. Uh, of using economic coercive measures against China. It can do some of that, but it's a tough thing to do. And what ultimately the lesson that I think uh, should or has been learned by India uh, is that it really needs to work more closely with external partners, external balancers, and first and foremost, the United States, to have a chance of more effectively managing this relationship with China going forward. All right, third and most briefly, uh, observation is that Afghanistan is already had a, having a detrimental effect on Indo-Pacific, on our strategy in the Indo-Pacific. Now we're seeing over recent months a rapid security deterioration in Afghanistan, and this has not escaped Beijing's attention. Uh, it seems clear to me from conversations uh, with Chinese experts that Beijing anticipates a return of the Taliban to power uh, sooner or later quite possibly sooner. And while this is not a preferred Chinese outcome, it is likely, in part perhaps because they are being informed um, by Pakistani intelligence sources, but uh, in part because they have their own uh, perspective. Beijing is principally, as I said before, concerned about security issues. It is concerned about uh, a terrorist threat directly to China and a threat to Chinese interests in Pakistan. So it will try to make its own peace with the Taliban. Uh, this is not an economic strategy. Again, this is principally a security uh, driver here for Chinese interests in the region. And on balance, uh, this develop these developments in Afghanistan are likely, at least in the near term, to pull China and Pakistan closer together. Both sides see benefits to working together. China tends to rely on Pakistan for influence and intelligence in Afghanistan. Pakistan sees China's greater power including its financial resources, as giving it greater clout in dealing in the region. And, uh, and this is part of a wider story about how China gives Pakistan uh, greater strategic confidence in the region, including in its dealings with India and with the United States. Now, the future is much less clear, obviously, to anyone. Uh, the ability of Pakistan or China to manage the uh, Afghanistan situation um, is uh, by no means um, certain. And uh, I read a piece by Ambassador Hussein Haqqani recently that said, you know, Pakistan should be careful what it wishes for in Afghanistan. It may get it. I agree with that. Now, in spite of uh, this uh, and U.S. efforts to manage the fallout from Afghanistan, uh, this is going to be a point of friction. It already is in the U.S.-India relationship because India sees only pain from these developments in Afghanistan. It has old images of what Afghanistan used to be. It fears the spillover of terrorism uh, from Kashmir uh, that will combine and make its life, India's life more difficult with land-based security threats from Pakistan and China. And the US, at least from an Indian perspective, does not seem to and has not seemed to fully appreciate these connections, has tended to see India mainly as an Indo-Pacific partner not a Western Asian partner, has looked to the East, not to the West, and uh, will not be eager to see Indian investments skew even more toward its land forces to deal with these threats and away uh, potentially from its naval investments. 
So the bottom line here is unless Afghanistan can be kept from further unraveling, it will be a distracting thorn in the side of the U.S.-India relationship. It will weaken India's capacity to play the kind of strategic role that the United States would hope it to play uh, or has hoped it to play in the Indo-Pacific, and it potentially will extend China's uh, regional influence and access into very sensitive uh, geography for India. So I've gone a little bit long, but I hope not too far, uh, and, and uh, look forward to the conversation that follows. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks to <coughs> Jeff uh, for organizing this. Thanks to the Heritage Foundation. It's a pleasure to be here and actually be doing a panel in person as opposed to over Zoom. Um, our discussion comes at a really important and interesting time, um, and it's interesting to think of the context in which we're, we're sort of discussing this subject. Um, it's about, it's been over a thousand days now since uh, China um, arrested uh, two Canadian citizens, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, uh, in retaliation for uh, the arrest of uh, a prominent Chinese businesswoman, um, and they remain uh, in, in custody uh, in China. It's been 13 months since 20 Indian soldiers were killed um, on the uh, boundary with China, uh, and at least five, four uh, Chinese soldiers, um, which sort of, again, uh, uh, shows the limitations of what was once thought of as China's peaceful rise. Uh, it's been one year since new national security laws were promulgated in Hong Kong, um, which uh, has sort of extended in their extraterritoriality the uh, scope that many had uh, ex many had uh, anticipated beforehand. Uh, and it's been over uh, about a year since uh, Australia announced a series of major cyber attacks, including against their parliament, uh, by a sophisticated uh, state-based actor that is uh, widely believed to be uh, China. Um, so, I, I, and the reason I laid this out is I think you know we're having this conversation at, uh, in, in the context uh, not just of uh, the the, um, the pandemic that continues to uh, the coronavirus pandemic that continues to uh, create problems for many countries around the world, including uh, uh, China, which is experiencing another outbreak, uh, but also um, I think a, a growing Chinese assertiveness in many different um, arenas simultaneously. Uh, one place, obviously, where uh, this is playing out is in South Asia. So I'll, I'll just make, sort of, I think, three broad observations, one on sort of China at a global level, one with respect to uh, the region, one with respect to bilateral relations with India, that I think is sort of important to keep in mind when, when looking at this, uh, as this, the situation as it unfolds. In some ways, the last 20 years has been a very interesting exercise in examining how a closed one-party state uh, would engage with an increasingly globalized world. And in some ways, there's an inherent contradiction there. That is, you know, China is a, a single-party state. Uh, it, is, it is a much more closed system of governance. And yet we are in a world where, you know, in a much more open information environment, a much more open trading system um, than uh, we have arguably ever been in uh, over the past 20 years. Um, this this contradiction in some ways wasn't much of an issue as long as China was inward looking, uh, which it was for much of the 1980s and 1990s, uh, apart from uh, sort of its burgeoning trade and exports. Uh, but since the early 2000s, we start seeing a sort of going out strategy on the part of China, which has since, after 2013, been given a name, as Dan uh, mentioned, in, in terms of the Belt and Road Initiative. But in some ways, this had very clear antecedents, and we saw everything from military modernization efforts to outward foreign investment, to Chinese companies like Huawei being active in places like Africa, 
uh, all since the early 2000s. There was one view that this wouldn't really matter, that beyond a point, it didn't matter whether the, the system of governance in China really would make a difference as to how its private sector actors would play, uh, how its uh, economic relations with other countries would translate. Um, a second view was that actually the globalization would change China more than the other way around. Uh, that ultimately, the, the more China went out, the more it would be compelled to open up internally. But I think the last few years has really, in some ways, poured cold water over both of those expectations. Um, and the clear priority given domestically to the primacy of the Chinese Communist Party at home is now beginning to be felt much more uh, internally, of course, but also increasingly in its external relations. Um, this is quite evident in the uh, greater regulation and governance of and censorship of the internet, uh, where, again, you have this sort of uh, in access to information which was supposed to lead to greater transparency and has yet actually, in fact, been turned into a tool uh, to, uh, to uh, for, for, you know, whether it's surveillance or, or monitoring or, in fact, data, the use of data, has actually been uh, sort of turned on its head in some ways from, from what some of the early and very optimistic expectations were about the effects of this information access. Um, similarly, in, in sort of recent months, we've seen this play out in a very different way, which is uh, the uh, regulation of major Chinese private companies from Alibaba to Didi. So um, again, there's this sort of contradiction between a closed political system and an open, sort of an open world are, is playing out in some very unexpected ways. Those contradictions are coming more and more to a, to a head. And it will be interesting to see how this plays out now in the coming, uh, uh, in, in, in the coming months and years. So that would be my first broad observation. I think that, that really sort of speaks at the heart of, of China's global engagement, including in South Asia. Okay. Another in, interesting thing, and Dan alluded to this already, uh, is that South Asia has actually been a very interesting uh, testing ground uh, for uh, China's external engagements, uh, including uh, really over the last 50 or 60 years, in fact, not just in the last 10 to 20 years, although it's taken a new form. Um, and and the, the reason I mentioned this is that for a lot of observers in the West, including in the United States and in Washington, D.C., there has been an excessive focus on China's, uh, uh, on China's relations with, with its East and specific uh, neighbors. So whether it's cross uh, Taiwan Straits relations, whether it is uh, the Korean Peninsula questions, whether it's China-Japan relations, and to a lesser degree, South, the South China Sea, although the, and that has obviously increased in salience over the last uh, few years. But South Asia has often featured prominently, at least in Chinese actions, if not always in Chinese, um, uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, literature on um, uh, China's uh, foreign relations, although that is now changing. Um, I think just again to give some context, in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, you st start seeing China, Chinese outreach to Nepal, uh, culminating in the settlement of that boundary dispute uh, between Nepal and China, uh, and the removal of Indian forces that had been stationed there previously. In the 1960s, it was of course the settlement of China, the China-Pakistan boundary, uh, including the ceding of territory by Pakistan uh, in the Trans-Karakoram Tract. Um, and what's interesting about that is until pretty you know, uh, just a few years before, there was serious consideration about Pakistan and India working together to uh, stem uh, Chinese expansionism because of shared concerns about uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, that all changed, of course, after the 1962 India-China 
war and, and in some ways the setting the stage for a closer China-Pakistan relationship. In the 1970s, uh, Sri Lanka was a major recipient of Chinese food aid. Uh, again, uh, sort of, it was not simply a geopolitical uh, uh, motivations, but also cultural. Um, uh, Sri Lanka is a fellow Buddhist country, uh, and of course, a strategic location in the Indian Ocean. Uh, in the 1980s, Bangladesh became a major recipient of uh, Chinese military exports. In fact, uh, after Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh uh, was for many years the second largest uh, destination of Chinese military exports, largely a function of cost and Bangladesh's deteriorating relationship with India in, the, in those years. Also in the late 1980s, you saw uh, Nepal seriously considering an intelligence and air defense uh, arrangement with China. Um, and that led to a crisis in India-Nepal relations. Um, uh, now, uh, all of this is very interesting, but I mean, I, I lay this out to say that South Asia has often been a place where China has ha China has been active. And what has changed, obviously, is the means, uh, China's means, as, as its material capabilities have increased as part of China's rise, um, but also um, uh, the, the nature of those relationships uh, has also changed. In some cases, it is largely still economically led. In some cases, it's much more military to military. And in some cases, it's more party to party and politically driven in its relations. Uh, there are several recent studies that I would recommend to people uh, who are interested in this, including by Andrew Small, uh, Tanvi Madan, Jeff Smith, John Garver, and of course, uh, Dad Markey, whose book I look forward to reading. Um, the third point I would make is that, you know, again, given this, uh, the, the, the sort of larger uh, uh, aspects of uh, China's going out and uh, policy and its rise, uh, coupled with its particular focus uh, historically uh, on South Asia, uh, this has obviously been both driven and influenced India-China bilateral relations. Um, in 2006, uh, 15 years ago now, uh, in the early days of Google Earth, uh, um, an amateur in Germany uh, discovered a very strange tract uh, measure uh, of a square uh, in Ningxia province in, in, in China, uh, measuring roughly 900 meters by 700 meters. And this was an exact 1 to 500 scale, scale down model of Aksai Chin in eastern Ladakh. Um, that was uh, uh, recreated uh, by the PLA um, more than 2,000 kilometers away uh, from its actual location. Um, it's interesting, I mean, I, I, the, the reason I raise it is that clearly there, were, there was uh, an anticipation of uh, uh, Chinese, um, uh, of, of India-China security tensions as much as 15 years uh, ago. Uh, this was reported in the press, it got some circulation at the time. Um, but it is, it is interesting to look back on, um, on, on, on this fact. Um, India-China relations were largely seen to have been getting better, particularly until uh, roughly 2013. Uh, between 1993 and 2013, India and China signed five major agreements on managing the boundary. But it was very soon um, uh, followed uh, by the first of what became four, and to date have been four major boundary crises. Uh, one in 2013, uh, one in 2014, very shortly after Prime Minister Modi uh, was elected, uh, and in fact, when President Xi Jinping was in India. Um, one in 2017 that Jeff spoke about, the Doklam crisis, uh, and of course, the 2020-2021 Ladakh crisis, which led to the first fatal casualties. Um, this, 
uh, each one had its own uh, uh, reasons and logic, and, and in one case has not been uh, fully concluded. But it's safe to say that it has, as, as Dan mentioned, really altered the tenor and nature of the India-China relationship. Uh, until 2013, it was safe to say uh, that there were aspects of cooperation between India and China, uh, particularly on bilateral economic issues uh, and on multilateral issues, including at the United Nations, on climate negotiations, at the BRICS forum, uh, and at the uh, eventually at the uh, Asian Investment, uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, those have uh, since, uh, in some ways, deteriorated quite significantly. Uh, amongst the steps that he has taken in the last uh, year uh, since the boundary crisis has been the effective exclusion of Chinese companies from 5G uh, bidding, uh, the greater scrutiny of FDI uh, coming from China, uh, and effective uh, uh, limitations on public procurement um, by, uh, by state entities from China. Um, and this has led, to, uh, the, the effects I think will still remain to be seen, uh, the latest figures, trade, bilateral trade figures, suggest that overall trade has, has actually gone up, although the trade deficit has narrowed slightly in India's favor. Um, multilateral uh, relations have also soured uh, as well, and we see less cooperation both substantively on, on questions of membership when it comes to multilateral bodies between India and China. But this has been coupled with an intensification of two previous areas of competition, both on the bilateral boundary, um, as I mentioned, and on regional security issues, including in uh, uh, other countries in South Asia. So with that context, I think this is sort of the, the, the um, path ahead. It'll be very interesting to see how all of these aspects, um, again, China's overall approach to its external relations, its particular focus on South Asia, and the bilateral relationship with India uh, change over the coming months and years. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeff, and to the Heritage Foundation uh, for uh, uh, for putting this panel together. And it's great, really great to be here. As Jeff mentioned, just moved to DC, so it's one of the first in-person panels. Um, thank you. Uh, just to kind of follow up from what uh, Dan and uh, Dhruva has mentioned, um, I thought I'll, I'll take a more look at the maritime domain and the Indian Ocean region aspect of it and what China is doing there, and also maybe provide an overview of how the region as such is looking at Chinese engagements uh, uh, in the region. Um, China's engagements in the Indian Ocean region or maritime South Asia, um, the eastern, uh, eastern part of the Indian Ocean region, has been pretty consistent. Uh, I think whatever China is doing in the Indian Ocean region is consistent and in coordination in its larger maritime ambitions and its goals because its vulnerabilities lie in the Indian Ocean region. So if China wants to be, China not only wants to be a security partner, a key partner for a lot of the littorals and islands in the Indian Ocean region, but it also wants to be the security partner. That means it has to be able to sustain itself and be present in the region to provide that security. And over the years, there has been some engagements or some deployments China has undertaken which have gone to show that China can uh, cover the distance, the geographic distance that China can be present in the region and meaningfully, I guess, engage in crisis or, or issues in the region. And some of them, of course, one of the first ones has been the anti-piracy missions that China undertakes in Horn of Africa, which is um, um, on the Western Indian Ocean. There was a Maldives water crisis a couple of years ago, um, and China was the second Navy that reached Maldives 
to uh, provide assistance. First was India, but the distance that Indian Navy had to cover and the distance that the Chinese Navy had to cover was, of course, significantly more. And the fact that China was still the second Navy that was able to reach them, I think, was in a way to show that we are able to come forward, I think, in terms of uh, despite the geographical distances. Um, uh, China has also offered support and assistance for the uh, search and rescue missions for MH370. China has deployed submarines in the Indian Ocean region for anti-piracy missions, not necessarily required, but nevertheless. Uh, there are more and more Chinese fishing vessels in the region, and even more, um, the Indian Navy has been talking more about it, uh, is that there are more and more scientific and uh, surveillance missions and ships in the Indian Ocean region uh, uh, from China, which is, of course, to map the region, to understand the geography, to be able to do deployments in the region. Um, so China's, and China has, in whatever China is doing in the Indian Ocean region, I think actually amongst a lot of the nation, China is <coughs> one country who sees the Indian Ocean region as one theater. So it has been pretty consistent in its engagement from Sri Lanka to Comoros at different scales, but still it sees it at, a, at, at one area. The first overseas base that did come up uh, was in Djibouti, which was the eastern coast of Africa, but a very much a part of the Indian Ocean region. But and whether it's Washington or whether it's, I guess, a Tokyo or even Paris, uh, sometimes, most of the time, Indian Ocean is very divided. So you get, it kind of disappears in the Africa continental issues or South Asia continental issues. But I think China has done a pretty good job in terms of mapping the region as a maritime, uh, maritime area. Um, one way, there is a difference between what China is doing in the China's um, engagements in, I would say, South China Sea and South Asia and what is happening in the Indian Ocean region is that China doesn't have territorial disputes in the Indian Ocean region. So from a regional point of view, China is not necessarily the bad guy. Uh, China, in fact, sometimes might have uh, an open space to come and engage. China is also the only country, one of the few countries with uh, diplomatic missions in all the six island nations in the Indian Ocean region, and these missions date back to the 70s. So it's not in the next last five to 10 years. Um, so Chinese, so the way China is perceived, because I do hear this question very often that despite what is happening in the South China Sea, despite what's happening in the South Asia border, why would countries choose to engage with China or why would they welcome Chinese investments and engagement in the region? And the reason is because the difference in perspective and the lens, how they see China and how they see the other powers in the region. And I think that, that perhaps will have to change as we move forward uh, in engaging and understanding this competition. Uh, there is no denying that China will continue to invest, engage, and expand its footprint in the Indian Ocean region. It will be critical for, it, for China to call itself a maritime actor, player, power, however you put it. Uh, its main trading routes uh, go through the Indian Ocean region, uh, so there is no way around it. And for that, it would engage with the region uh, at large. And within that, the islands will, of course, play a big role in it because of the geography, as it did at any point during Great Power Competition. But I think while looking at China from a US perspective, from a policy perspective, or whether it's through US and its partners, it will also be important to understand uh, the regional dynamics. And the Indian Ocean regional dynamics have changed significantly since the Cold War period, when it was the last time uh, there was uh, a completion of this sort. And at that point, a lot of the countries were still gaining independence. The agency was perhaps not that big. But today, that, that dynamic has changed. So the US will also have to show up in the region, talk to the countries, and engage in the region to decide what its Indian Ocean policy is, approaches, instead of 
mostly transiting it. And I think that is something that countries realize that. And whether India does it through in its partnership with India, with Australia, with France, which is a very big player in the Western Indian Ocean, uh, you'd have to understand really the changing dynamics and the regional perspective and why countries are choosing to focus on China. And within that context, understanding what is happening in the South Asia border, what is happening in the South China Sea, that it will of course carry on in the Indian Ocean region, but to meaningfully engage with, I guess, Indian Ocean region or maritime South Asia, we'd also have to understand why our countries welcoming it, because not everything is being imposed by China. A lot of it is also being welcomed. And it is being welcomed because they were probably most likely countries were not um, um, happy with with the traditional powers and their way of engagement. Recently, uh, when after the Sri Lankan elections and when uh, President came, the new president came to Bharatabhya, he talked about he very uh, when he visited India, he said that if if the U.S. and India do not want us to be a part of the Belt and Road Initiative, or if if we if they don't want China to invest in the region, then they have to provide the alternative to China. So it's not going to be enough to say don't engage with China, but to come up with that alternative and what that alternative could be. And engaging with the maritime domain, because it is a maritime domain and it's islands, doesn't mean that you know you have to send because I've heard this heard this narrative also from Washington that, well, Pacific takes more of a priority, so how much resources does the U.S. really have to uh, spare for the Indian Ocean region? You don't really necessarily have to send big ships. Most of the island nations are smaller nations with coast guards. Uh, there are issues of fishing, of uh, patrolling for surveillance, uh, for training, for capacity building, maritime domain awareness. There are a range of issues that can be done without necessarily taking away American resources from the Pacific. But to be able to um, understand or craft, I guess, a policy towards how to engage in the region, it will also be uh, important to understand how the countries in the region define security. The definition of security itself is different between great bigger powers in the region and the smaller nations, the littorals and the islands. So if the competition is between denying China an influence by providing an alternative to Chinese investments in the region, you also have to understand what is the uh, security perspective. So climate change will come up in that. Illegal fishing will come up in that. Drug trafficking, humans, uh, drug smuggling, human trafficking. So I think these are some of the areas that US and its partners would have to look at and re-engage re with the Indian Ocean region first as one theater to really understand what is happening and not draw the invisible, invisible lines across the Indian Ocean region. I think we are definitely, we, we see some progress toward that. Uh, just yesterday from uh, Secretary Blinken and uh, our Foreign Minister uh, Jashankar's uh, meeting, it was pretty, uh, it, it, there were um, uh, suggestions that there are, there are more talks around uh, collaborations on the Western Indian Ocean. And I think that would have to, those invisible lines will have to be worked on to understand and really compete if the goal is to compete with China in the Indian Ocean region. Um, I'll stop here and look forward to q &A. That's That was great. And um, you all provided fantastic context for China's growing presence and activities uh, in South Asia. Um, we have a little bit of time for a, a back and forth. And so I wanted to bring the discussion back to the border disputes in particular. I think we've set the stage very well. Um, my overarching question is, what makes India and Bhutan different for China? We're very familiar China has a number of maritime territorial disputes in the South China Sea. They get a lot of attention. 
uh, has disputes with Japan over the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands. It has claims on Taiwan. But the irony is China has resolved most of its land border disputes. Druva mentioned it resolved a dispute with Pakistan and Nepal in the 1950s and the 1960s. It went on a, uh, a spree resolving its other land border disputes in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, including with Central Asian countries, but not India and not Bhutan. China resolved those border disputes because it must have made the calculation that keeping them open was more costly uh, than the benefits it was providing, that it would uh, certainly provide a breakthrough in bilateral relations to settle these land border disputes, and it wasn't getting much benefit from keeping them open, but not with India and, and not Bhutan. And it's not only been willing to keep them open, it's now actively serving as an aggressor on these border disputes. Um, it had, in fact, been on a charm offensive with Bhutan for decades, seeking to uh, appeal Bhutan away from India to establish more formal relations with Bhutan. And in the past two years, it seems to have thrown that strategy to the wind and said, no, this is more important. I'm claiming new territory. I'm building villages. This is more important than good relations with Bhutan. Same with India, a critically important relationship for China. Uh, one, it had spent considerable time and energy at least trying to manage bilateral tensions. And in the past few years, that calculation has been completely upended. Um, why? I think that, that is an interesting question. Um, the prevailing belief about the China-India border dispute is that China links the border dispute and Tibet. And it is unhappy with India for hosting the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan government in exile. And that until it believes the Tibet issue is sufficiently stable and resolved, it would like to keep the border dispute open as a point of leverage over India. Uh, what is the calculation with, with regard to Bhutan? Has China's claims on Bhutan become more important, strategically important for China? Does it now value this territory near India's chicken's neck even more than it did before, more so than it values a healthy relationship with Bhutan? I, I wonder um, if, if we could just take a few moments um, to share what your thoughts might be. What is animating China's cost-benefit calculation with, with regard to these two border disputes that seem to be more intractable than China's other border disputes? Druba, if you want. Take a stab, but if, yeah, I'll follow up, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll give you sort of five quick reasons that I, I think, um, although the, uh, the, the importance of each one has changed over time. Um, I think the first reason was simply a legal one, which is that the People's Republic of China and an independent in the Republic of India inherited uh, an ambiguous border uh, that was never sort of clearly demarcated and which both sides, meaning the, the Qing Empire previously and, and the British Raj in India, deliberately wanted that ambiguity for a number of reasons. So uh, there, there, there was always that uncertainty from the start. 
uh, and many of the places under dispute today have were, were always in this sort of questionable gray zone, which were you know, so uh, unlike other boundaries, which you know with North Korea, which were more clearly demarcated, for example, in the past, even though that remains um, that ha that subsequently was an issue uh, between China and North Korea. Um, the second issue, I think, was uh, the strategic significance, particularly of Aksai Chin, which is early on, it was essentially the only major road that connected Xinjiang and Tibet ran through Aksai Chin, and therefore it was more important for the PLA and, and for China to have control over that than it was for, for India, for whom the Kashmir Valley and, and other uh, territories were much more important. So I think that was the second reason, although now, you know, uh, as that, that has diminished in, in time, uh, the significance of that has diminished in time, some time. The third is, I think, the Tibet question, uh, which is as long as Tibet remains, uh, there are political concerns about Tibet and all that, uh, and that'll, uh, of particular significance, I think, is the Tawang aspect of the territorial dispute because of the historical significance of Tawang. The fourth, and maybe this is perhaps the key reason, is really the balance of power, which is, um, uh, that that sort of India has traditionally represented, uh, you know, a, 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 the other large state in Asia. Um, in arguably in the 1950s, India was sort of the more capable, more more uh, had more resources than China did, uh, and therefore this as part of the sort of geopolitical competition, it was necessary to keep. Uh, keep that uh, on, uh, you know, uh, keep keep the India on edge, in a very similar way that sort of maintaining the Japan-China maritime territorial dispute is is about keeping that alive. Um, and I'd say the 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 sort of uh, the final point is just with respect to Bhutan. I mean, I think it, the the reason Bhutan has not been settled is because India and Bhutan still enjoy a particularly uh, close and um, uh, privileged relationship, uh, including the security. Partnership, um, and in some ways, the the pressure putting pressure on Bhutan, uh, particularly on points that Bhutan deems less important, which is, is the case of uh, Doklam, um, is a way in some ways of testing that that uh, India uh, the India Bhutan relationship but going forward. Let me just uh, very quickly follow up, and I agree that did appear to be Beijing's strategy toward Bhutan for some time, but this new claim seems to break from that tradition. You're not going to sort of peel Bhutan away from India by just building new villages and territory Bhutan wasn't even aware was being claimed by China. You know, you see, it's, it does seem to be a change in, in, in tack by Beijing, who, who actually seemed to be having some success for a while at getting Bhutan to think about wanting more independence and maybe establishing diplomatic relations with China. And all of a sudden, it seems we've gone sharply in the other direction. I do largely agree with the five reasons that you laid out there, but uh, this this does seem to break from past tradition. Is is all I'm I mean, I, I, getting I'd be at. Eager to hear other other views, but I mean, I think it does increase bargaining power for China, and and in some ways, mm -hmm. the idea is to you know um, there are voices, and I think it would be great to get a Bhutanese perspective on this. But there are voices in Bhutan who say, um, you know, let's seed areas that are, you know, or let's, you know, there's this, maybe not see, but there's certain areas that are of less importance to us. We, let us, you know, focus on, on the areas where, so obviously it's a sensitive issue, the, the their, their relationship, but I think it, you do see mixed voices in the Bhutanese media about how to approach the China question with some advocating obviously for, that this requires deepening the relationship with India, but also plenty of voices, pretty younger voices who are saying, 
actually the relationship with India is a liability. And it's because of that that China is putting pressure on us. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I do think it, it sort of works both ways. I mean, while logically it does seem like why would China open up a more, another front? I think it does uh, play to a certain audience that says, you know, the, the overwhelming might of China is uh, is coming down on us, and perhaps we need to water down our relationship with India to assuage uh, those yeah. concerns. Well, they tried the carrots, and now they're trying the sticks, sharpen those divisions even more. Uh, Dan, did you have any thoughts on? Yeah, I mean, I I'm not going to weigh in on on Bhutan uh, in particular, and I like Dhruva's formulation, the five uh, uh, points that he made. Um, look, your question though though uh, really sort of gets to the heart of a related point, which is just the opacity of the uh, strategic aims and vision of Beijing. Um, and if we had uh, a Beijing, we could imagine a Beijing that was much more clear about what its goals and aspirations were, then many of these things would be much more easily resolved. That's the core, that's the nub of the problem. So I think that bears pointing out. The other, maybe again, rather simple point to make would be both India and China have been building up their defenses uh, along uh, and throughout this area. And so uh, in some ways, you know, again, simplistically, it's not hard to see why the two have come to blows now. It was more a matter of time, uh, not if, but when. And that relates to the fact, again, a broad development that both are rising powers, uh, both sensitive, concerned about their territories, uh, and both have strategic sensibilities that butt up against one another, which for uh, literally generations or decades at least um, were so remote uh, that they could each afford uh, to essentially assume that the, the distance would solve many of their problems. And that's no longer the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, new military technologies, new um, uh, both platforms and um, investments made along the border changed that reality and bring them uh, up close to one another now in ways that weren't true before. Hmm. And Darshana, I'd welcome you to offer thoughts. And if you want to bring in uh, the maritime discussion as well, I know that's an area you focus on a great deal. Um, certainly welcome your thoughts on, on the changing calculation at the China, India, and China-Bhutan border, but also uh, China's changing footprint in the Indian Ocean. It also seems to be uh, willing to accept more risk and a greater presence in the naval arena as well, um, whether it's now conventional and nuclear submarine patrols, whether it's opening a, a military base, as you mentioned, in the Indian Ocean, something that for decades it swore it would never do. Um, do you foresee uh, growing friction between the Indian and Chinese navies and even more appetite for risk on China's part uh, in the years ahead? Um, thanks. Um, I, I don't have much to add on the Bhutan question because I think both Ruva and Dan have really done a, uh, provide the context for that. Um, on the maritime space, I definitely do see more expanding footprint from China. Not And it's not only because um, China wants to expand this presence, but also because the region is welcoming it. And I think that is one narrative that most are not willing to hear because it feels like, okay, China is just coming and you know forcing countries to accept its Uh, investments or kind of, you know, giving unsustainable debt financing, which all of it is true, but it's also welcomed. And it's welcome because for the last 30 years, the Indian Ocean has been 
fairly competition free. So the countries which were already in the region kind of got, went into a strategic inertia where you did not necessarily have to invest or um, engage with the region in the manner that you would if there was a competitor, right? And that competition is coming out today. And from my point of view, actually, uh, China's footprint in the Indian Ocean region will increase uh, quicker from the coast of Africa than from the from this side of the Indian Ocean region because everybody is, uh, you know, uh, noticing and observing and has their attention on what if there's a port coming up in Sri Lanka or or Maldives or Myanmar or Pakistan. But even in India, you know, there wasn't a big hue and cry when the Djibouti port came up because just mentally you think of Africa so continentally that I think most forget to kind of make that bridge over that it's still part of the maritime domain, that even if China has two facilities in the coast of Africa or Southwest Indian Ocean, Djibouti, and if they are able to open up one more in the Southwest of Indian Ocean, without transiting back home, they'll still be able to maintain a presence longer in the, in the region. And I think that would significantly change uh, the competition and the power dynamics in the region. And I do see something like that happening in the near future if, um, I guess, um, and, and uh, not to discount the new enthusiasm and kind of a change in India's uh, uh, policies in the Indian Ocean region, which I think is a good step forward. I do see changes from Washington as well. I think U.S. is opening up an embassy in Maldives now. Um, so there's a defense cooperation in, in place. Um, so absolutely, I do see changes coming from it. But it's also a lot reactionary, right? And the countries do do realize that. And even if it is reactionary, I think I think it would be useful to view the region from a new lens as China as the competitor in the Indian Ocean region, rather than carrying on uh, dominantly from a Cold War era where it was USSR, which was so the geographies of that have also changed, even if the region is the same, even if it's the Indian Ocean region. So I absolutely do see more competition in the Indian Ocean region. I see more Chinese footprint in the Indian Ocean region. It's welcomed. Plus, it is also its vulnerability, as I mentioned. If the for China, the competition will be in the South China Sea. It's defending what it already says and claims as its own. In the Indian Ocean region, it has to create that foundation. And that's where its vulnerabilities are. So it will definitely be aggressive. I think we could go another hour, but our events team would have my head if we don't cut this uh, pretty soon. I, I think Darshana does make a very good point that uh, this change in China's strategy and presence in the Indian Ocean and South Asia is not just the push of Beijing, it's also the pull of regional capitals who are looking for economic investments, are looking for alternatives to traditionally dominant powers in the region, um, Bhutan included, frankly. Uh, now, after 15 years of elevated Chinese engagement in the region, there has been some reconsideration of the benefits and the risks of getting too close to China. And we've seen this dynamic push and pull. Um, changes in governments produce radically different approaches toward China. Uh, swinging between uh, closer engagement and pushing China further away. Um, it, but it is now an active competition and a dynamic uh, geopolitical space, uh, arena of competition where it wasn't before. Um, and so that will provide plenty of fodder for us to continue doing roundtable panels on China in South Asia and continue to try to 
develop a better understanding of what's happening there and um, how it affects American interests. So to the panel today, thank you very much for taking the time to join us for an enriching discussion. Thank you to everyone watching from home, and I look forward to seeing you again soon.